Let's pray, guys. Father, thank you again for your presence with us as we are gathered as your people to see how we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We can worship you. We can be built up in the truth that our hearts could be blessed and satisfied in knowing that you are God, that you are our God, that we can love and adore and gain great joy from. Lord, we commit our time in your precious word together, asking, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, humble us, help us to be teachable, help us to stand in awe of you, for you have spoken to us, and you are faithful to do the work in us through your word which you have promised to do, and in that we rejoice. Bless us, Lord, and may you be blessed by the proclamation of your word and your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I invite you guys to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. Our passage this morning will be verses 5 through 11. We'll read through all of those just to understand the context. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. May God be blessed by the reading of his word. We are going to encounter a very important theme in the scripture today, a theme that is most important, necessary, a permanent fixture, Lord willing, in the entirety of the Christian life, and that is humility. It is the running theme, especially through verses 5 through 7. And how that fits in the backdrop of our current context is, if you remember, we've spent the last couple of Lord's Days going through elders, not simply their qualifications what makes an elder an elder, but how they are supposed to conduct themselves in God's holy household. What does an elder do? What is an elder not supposed to do? How is he supposed to do it? And how is he not supposed to do it? But we find that there is a relationship here. As we know, of course, the church is a relational body. We spend time with one another. Hopefully we love one another and that we are growing together. And so God in His wise Counsel, in his own sovereign will, he arranged that within his body there are posted and selected elders or overseers, however you call them, to lead and feed his church, to act as under-shepherds under the authority of the good, the great, the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and to do this willfully and to set an example to the flock of God. 
And that's not the only part of the story. That's only one part of it. Only one part of it. We find on the receiving end, on the responsive end, who Peter identifies as younger men. Younger men, he says in verse 5. Likewise, be subject to your elders. That's how he begins. That's where the response begins to the leadership of elders. So, of course, this assumes that within the church there are elders, there are leaders, there are teachers and preachers of the Word of God, disciplers, and then there are those who have subjected themselves, falling voluntarily under the leadership of those elders, to be discipled and to respond humbly. And it is humility that is the common thread that runs through this passage, especially through uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, most likely we will only cover verse 5 today. I really want to highlight some things, especially given the, uh, the times in which we live regarding verses 6 and 7, but we will get through uh, verse 5 today, see how that applies to our life in the church. But in order to understand this passage, we have to understand humility, because humility is central in the life of the church. Now keep in mind, humility is something that, while exalted within the life of the people of God, as, as really part of our culture, part of how we do life together, this is something that would be seen as unusual in Greco-Roman thought. If you lived in Roman society, humility was not thought of as a virtue. Humility, being humble, was something that was characteristic of a slave. And remember, in that time, a slave was seen as one who did not have personhood. You were the personal property of your master, subject to their whim. They had the power of life and death over you. Humility was not seen as something to be desired. It was something that you were born with. You were born in humble circumstances. And you belonged to your master. But it was not seen as something that was an exalted character of a man. And yet it is central in the life of the Christian. Humility, as defined by C.J. Mahaney, is understanding oneself in light of God's holiness and one's own sinfulness. That might be a good definition for starters, but I believe an incomplete one. I think humility is something that is all-encompassing in the life of the Christian, and by extension, holistically within the life of the church. We are to be a humble body. We are to be known by be as through humility, to express that consistently and obviously. So it's not merely understanding ourselves in light of God's holiness and our own sinfulness. That's where it begins. But holistically, it's in light of everything that is God, in light of everything that is a dependent, born-again Christian. For instance, to be humble, to exercise humility, is also to understand ourselves in light of God's wisdom and our own foolishness, especially our foolishness without Him. It is to understand ourselves in light of God's strength and my own weakness. To understand ourselves in in light of all that is of God in light of all of God's sufficiency and where we fall short in the flesh. But humility is also the willingness to entrust ourselves to a God who possesses abundantly all of those things, in all of His holiness and strength and wisdom. It is voluntarily coming under that and entrusting ourselves to that and depending upon it fully. That is where humility truly shines. 
But humility is not something that is compartmentalized. It is not something that is given so little attention. Humility covers or colors all of the Christian life. Everything we do is to be done in humble fashion. Done in light of our identity in Christ and in God Himself. That is true humility. And humility is found in three ways in this passage, specifically verses 5-7. through The first direction regards humility shown toward those responsible for our spiritual care. That is, younger men that are willfully and humbly being subject to those who have spiritual charge and responsibility over them. That's the first, that's the first relationship of humility. The second is this, and it is also found in verse five. It says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And what's our motivation for that? For God is opposed to the proud, but gives, but gives grace to the humble. So humility is expressed toward one another as slaves of Christ. We are all to see ourselves as dependent upon the grace of God, knowing that His favor is toward we who humble ourselves before Him. And the third is this. It is the church humbling itself before God. In verse 6 we read this, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So that's the third way. So in light of that, the the title for this morning's sermon is simply this, three-dimensional humility. Three-dimensional humility. To see something three-dimensionally, we all, we all are familiar with what, what constitutes three dimensions. and We think of it as length, width, and height, right? In a very basic mathematical sense. Even today, three-dimensional technology, as it is called, is often a big deal. When we see something three-dimensionally, we see it as close to the real thing as possible. We see its shape. We see its depth. And that's what having three dimensions does. It gives something the appearance of of shape, of substance, of solid character, rather than simply being flat and two or even one dimensional. See, we see it all over the place. We love things three dimensionally. Some of you have kids, and some of you are kids at heart, and you love playing your three dimensional video game. You love the realism. You love the depth, how much the surface and the images pop out. It seems real, and we're attracted to that. We're attracted to the real. We're attracted to that which is three-dimensional. Another example we find is medicine. You use 3D technology to map out the human body. You can more accurately diagnose a particular issue or disease within the body, such as the size and shape of a tumor. To understand the scope of something, you want to see it, in three dimensions. You can see the problem as it is. We even have these cool new inventions, newish, called 3D printers. You can take an image, put it in a computer, and then you have your little, you have your software, and it talks to the 3D printer, and it can sculpt an image for you. I think, how neat is that? So much more real, so much more, I would even say, beautiful than seeing something come out two-dimensionally from a printer. And no matter how vibrant the color may be, to have it in three dimensions is so much more real, so much more attractive, so much more visible. We have the sense of what it truly is. And I would say the same thing is true when it comes to Christian virtues, especially one like humility. Humility is 
of such importance that we want to understand it, but not in just a simulated sense. See, that's the trick of of three-dimensionality. We simply see it in a simulated sense, but when it comes to humility and other things that are to characterize Christian character and the church's character, we want to understand these things as they actually are. And so, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5-7 through very eloquently and clearly, and I would say beautifully, lays this out. This relationship of humility that we are to have with one another, that is to characterize every single relationship within the Christian church's experience. Now notice how important this is, especially in the context in which Peter is speaking and writing this letter. It's a time of persecution. We bring this up often. Connects with us well as we see Christianity increasingly misrepresented and increasingly marginalized. And it is my hope and it is even my anticipation that in this, that it is humility that will enable the church to thrive through this time of persecution, of mounting persecution. That the church will be pruned. That the church will be purified. That even false expressions of Christianity will fall by the wayside and the true church in all of its beauty will come forth with shouts of praise, with triumph in its Savior. But this is never going to be done without humility. Remember, friends, pride is the enemy of the church. It is the great enemy of the church. So we must have humility. So the first dimension is this. Humility is shown between the leadership and those being discipled, those that Peter refers to as younger men. So again, we've been studying elders rather closely, and in verses 1 through 4, Peter enumerates what those serious responsibilities are. And so as we come to verse 5, Peter instructs these younger men as to what their response is to be. So humility is expressed from young men toward church elders through submission or being subject. Now we've talked about submission quite a bit because it's been referenced quite thoroughly earlier on in the book of 1 Peter. Now submission, unfortunately, today usually conjures up images of forcefulness, images of coercion, images of that which is unloving and harsh, even perhaps martial arts combat in which one makes his opponent tap out. Okay, you caused me enough discomfort, pain, and suffering. You've got me in a spiritual headlock. Now I will do what you say. But that's unloving. Suffice it to say that often, too often, tragically often, the image of submission is one of last resort where all other options have been expended. We submit when we have to. That's typically when we, how we see it. But when it comes to biblical submission, when it comes to humble submission, this is what we would call a willful subjection, a humble subjection. A voluntary subjection grounded in a desire, note this, to younger men, this is grounded in a desire to be a man of God. To also come to the point where younger men can be the examples that elders are now expected to set. It's very important. To voluntarily submit to elders is to be a student of Scripture with a teachable heart. And as much as we've talked about submission and willfully subjecting oneself to the various authorities in First Peter, I would say that this is probably the most essential one. When you think about it, 
if young men and by extension the rest of the church are submitting to elders as they bear the authority of God's word, then they will also rightly understand how to be submissive in every other area mentioned in the book. How do we, how do we lay out the parameters of being subject to governing authorities? The word of God. How do we lay out the parameters for wives being subject to their husbands? Through the word of God. See, it all starts with the ministry of the word. And as we've already talked about, everything that the elder teaches is to be subject to the word of God. Everything that the elder teaches and every way he ministers is to be grounded in the authority of God's word. And so the response, of course, is this voluntary, willful subjection under the word of God. And until this is accomplished, until there is some understanding that those who are under the teaching and and oversight of elders are to be held captive to the word of Christ, then it will be very difficult to understand submission in in every other area of life. And this is Peter's concern. See, persecution, as it begins to become more clearly directed toward the church, can be a catalyst for the minister, for the elder, to take advantage of his sheep, to gain unjustly, to lord their authority over the flock. See, persecution can be that. And just in the same manner, it can also be a time for confusion among the flock so that the sheep are reacting sinfully rather than responding submissively. Hence the appeal to those who are younger men to still exercise that subjection, to refer to your teachers, to rely on their wisdom as they glean it from God's word. Think about that in in the madness and chaos that is often human society, which more often than not brings out persecution. It is the body of Christ that is to be that singular organism within all of society that maintains order within itself. While the rest of humanity is freaking out, what is the church doing? It's voluntarily keeping itself under the authority of God's word, continuing in its worship and its ordinances and its discipleship, as if even though things are difficult, things go on as they are. Because the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. So the church continues to grow. The church continues to preach the gospel. The church continues to delight in Christ and to proclaim his kingdom. And it is this humble submission that provides the groundwork for that very thing. And so younger men here, whom Peter addresses, is I think could be seen as a general designation. As in those days of the church, it was typical for older men to be elders of the church. Now I'm 40, Jeremy's a little older, but back in these times we would be seen as old men. We're old men. So this does not necessarily eliminate younger men from serving in the leadership, but generally speaking, those who had more experience, those who had been walking with God and who were discipled in the teachings of Scripture were called upon to lead the flock. But note this, it is discipling and training young men in the faith that remains the primary vehicle through which the truths of Scripture are passed. We are called to equip young men and Again, conversely, young men are called to be equipped obediently by the leaders in their church in all areas of life. Remember, we talk about the gospel as all-encompassing. It speaks to every area of life, 
rather than being limited to going to heaven when you die. The gospel is to be everywhere, to speak to every context in life. That every area in of life may be subject to Christ. And so this ends up being a very, I think, prolonged, um, invested time. Equipping isn't something that we can think of in the fashion of a microwave reheating your meal from last night. No, it's in the slow cooker. It takes a while. And it is a joyful activity to see young men discipled in the church and to be prepared and equipped to be leaders. And not just in the church, but in every area of life, right? In, in, in your families, in your workplace, leading your wives, leading your children. See, we desire, especially you young men, to be equipped so that you can preach the gospel, preach the authority of the Lord Jesus in every area of life. But you are the ones who are going to set the example. Because you are the ones who are called to be leaders. See, if you are, we have called elders as those who are on the front line of true grace. And if you are on the front line, rather, of pride, rebellion, and being unteachable, what's going to happen is we're going to find pride, we're going to find rebellion, we're going to find an incorrigibility among the entire church. Because they're going to follow your example. They're going to look to you as what constitutes godliness. What constitutes humility? What constitutes a true leader and man of God? They're going to look to you. And if they see pride, rebellion, and unteachability, they're going to think, oh, that's what constitutes a man of God. I should do the same thing. But we find that that is not the case. The elders are to train men to be on the front line as well. So that where one falls or goes to be with the Lord, another may rise and continue what I would call an ideal situation to pass gospel truth down from generation to generation where older teach the younger and so on and so forth. And so we have it today. But it is that faithful legacy of humble submission that is the seedbed of what we see now in the church is going to all of the nations. That is a mark of faithfulness of older men teaching younger men. And so Peter singles out younger men specifically because he is charging them. And so I charge you today that you are to take willingly the mantle of leadership. And it is especially hard and tragic today to see the ball drop continually on this charge of leading people, in leading the people of God, of instilling truth within them. And it works both ways. In some sense, elders have been derelict in training up younger men under the authority of Scripture. Training men in the power of the Gospel. And that, is, that it is sufficient for everything and in every area of life. Also, younger men have a problem by being preoccupied with things that have no redemptive value. And I believe that in somewhere something has failed miserably where we see even professing young men, young men who profess Christ, stuck in a period of perpetual adolescence. Younger men who refuse to grow up. Younger men who refuse to take that mantle of godliness and be willing to set an example of what it means to love and follow Jesus Christ. And at what point will the church ask itself, is enough enough that we've let this go on for too long? That now is the time to be faithful in equipping young men to be leaders in the church and in their homes. And to put aside childish things and to be men of God and to be subject 
to God's word and to continually receive the truth of Scripture. So that's it explained. That's how this submission is to be expressed. A greater verse to describe this relationship comes from Hebrews 13, 17. It says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they may do this with joy, not groaning, for this would be unhelpful to you. So that in one verse we see described very concisely and yet very adequately this relationship between elders and those who, 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 who they are instructing. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who give an account. We've talked about this. Like We have to give an account someday for how we lead you, for how we disciple you. And we want to do this joyfully. We want to anticipate our times with you where we are able to pour into you. And not groaning, oh, where's this brother gone? He's running again. We've got to go track him down. This would be unhelpful, unprofitable, the Scripture says, for you. If you're constantly wishy-washy, constantly in and out, not taking the Word of God with seriousness and not honoring it. And I want to go very carefully through how this is expressed. We can explain this. We can, you know, we can go back to the Greek. We can hit up the theology of a given term or word like submission and humility, but we want to see what is what does this look like? If humility characterizes the church, then what characterizes humility? How how is this to be manifested in church life? Because one thing I want to be very clear on is when it says subject yourself to your elders, this in no way means that you guys are to follow us without question. It does not mean to do what we say without any kind of inquiry, without any kind of scrutiny, right? This is to be done with humility, but also with with wisdom and discretion. When Peter says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, that is with the understanding that your elders are godly qualified men who desire to set an example to you. So let's explore this a little more fully. Give it some time today. So what characterizes this submission to leadership in the church? First of all is this, and some of these are going to be pretty obvious, but the first one is this, subject yourself willfully. That simply means without complaint, without treating your elders with constant suspicion and seeing the worst in them. Now this is to not give myself an excuse to engage in sinful behavior and to not set an example to you. But as it works both ways, what we are trying to say here is that we are to acknowledge the presence of the Holy Spirit's work in one another's lives. This doesn't mean we're going to act perfectly. It doesn't mean that we will not often instruct you in a way that is perhaps unwise. But that will not be the trend, we would say. But that when we draw near to you to try to instruct you, to try to give you counsel based in God's divine word with all of its authority, that you hear us out without complaint, that you do it willfully and not begrudgingly, that if you do have an issue, that you do come and we talk this out and work through it so that we are able to build trust with one another. It has often been said, relationships in the church move at the speed of trust. But how can we build trust with one another if the, if the initial reaction is to be unwilling to hear instruction, unwilling to come under our watchful and hopefully careful eye. 
We want to care for you spiritually, but that is not possible if there is always suspicion and seeing the worst in your leadership. And it works both ways. Neither are elders to constantly harbor this over those whom they have charge over. So it is that willingness to to know one another and to build that trust. It is also means a willingness to change your mind. I say this often. We, we, we talk about this extensively in our membership class. That we all bring to the table our own convictions, our own opinions. And sometimes we, we, we allow those convictions to, to be invincible to the point where they, we don't even subject them to the Word of God. We may connect a verse or two with them and we have anchored a particular conviction firmly in our mind that cannot be changed. And we may see that as grounds for a disillusion of fellowship for taking off or for not having anything to do with the leadership. But humble subjection means a willingness to change your mind when your your personal convictions or, or exalted opinions really come under the authority of God's Word, under its scrutiny, to where you are flexible and humble to say, okay, I've thought this for a long time, perhaps... Perhaps I'm wrong, or perhaps I have been militant with this particular conviction and unbending and unwilling to consider that there is a different way of looking at it, or that Scripture says otherwise once compared with the whole counsel of God. So being under submission under an elder means that willingness. And often those things take time to work through. I know some of you have worked through several issues, and it's taken several months, even perhaps years. Maybe you still even haven't landed your plane on a particular issue. But what is the main point? Is that together, as a church, we work through these issues and we let God's Word speak to us as the final authority. Here's another one. This is a hard one. (laughs) To commit yourself willfully to this submission also means that you allow your elders to scrutinize your life. This is the painful part. Look, no one likes being told that they're wrong. No one likes being told that they're being proud. No one likes being told that they're being unteachable or difficult. It's hard. But willfully coming under the submission of elders means that you are allowing your elders and teachers to scrutinize your life, to speak into your life, to point out those areas of your life in which you are growing, but also in addition to the things that bring you spiritual harm. One of the reasons we labor over a point like this is because one of the most crippling problems in the church today is the simple unwillingness to hear correction. The simple unwillingness to hear correction. And not even in the church. I mean, apply this to your own relationships. I would say exhibit A, apply this to your marriage. I mean, show me a man whose marriage is absolutely falling apart. And chances are you'll also see a man who is too humble to listen to the counsel of his wife, or too proud, I should say, too proud to listen to the counsel of his wife. It's hard to hear correction. It's it's like a barb, right? Sometimes it's like a hot poker. It stings to hear correction. It hurts sometimes to hear that you have had this all wrong and that it is devastating you spiritually. It's hard to hear that you've had this massive blind spot in your walk with Christ Often for years, and someone is finally, the Lord sends you a messenger to point it out. And yet you're unwilling to hear that correction. See, on any level, it's so, I would say it is so commonplace in the church today, we barely realize that it hap- that it's happening. But it is wreaking havoc within the church. See, this is why 
membership is so important. This is why that mutually under, this, that mutual understanding of belonging to one another as the body of Christ and being under the watchful eye of loving elders is so key to a healthy church. It means a willingness to have those things pointed out. I mean, we, we, we've seen it, we've seen it before. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult to hear correction. It can get so bad that we're not even willing to listen to anything. That we war against counsel, just like fools. That we're unwilling to hear anything from the Word of God come to bear in our lives. It's hard. You understand, it's difficult. But we must be willing to hear correction. And sometimes, it's, all, it's not always going to be, it's not always going to be nice Sometimes correction is going to come in a variety of forms. It could be a whisper. It could be a shout. It may not always be nice, but it must always be truthful. Let's uh, bring up a word picture, if you will. Certain things in your life may present greater spiritual danger than others. So, for instance, if something is not that troubling, right? if it hasn't gotten a firm hold in your life, I may come alongside you, put my arm around you, say, hey, bro, this has been brought to my attention, and this, this could be a real problem if you continue this way. You know, warm, gentle, at ease, okay, trying to keep you from spiritual harm. But then there are other times where you sometimes have to bring the force of a hurricane or something to bear because of a level of obstinacy that has come from a particular sin that looks like it has enslaved you. And so there's a seriousness there. That we are trying to keep you from spiritual danger. If you're dragging yourself away headlong to death and destruction, then there will be times where we are going to have to shout from the rooftops to keep you from killing yourself. So for instance, back to the word picture. If your house is on fire, if your house is on fire, and you've set the fire, and you're asleep in your house, I am going to run in there if I have any love for you. I'm going to throw you over my shoulder and I'm going to carry you out. And if you're obstinate, I may have to kneecap you first and throw you over my shoulder so you're not kicking and punching at me while I'm trying to keep both of us from getting killed. See, that's not pleasant. But it's even situations like that that can cause younger men or younger disciples to kick against the goads to reject correction, anything that is deemed as harsh or not gentle. It is rejected, but that is sometimes the seriousness with which we must take sin. So sometimes the leadership is not going to all be smiles and whispers. Sometimes we have to shout. Sometimes we have to rouse you awake because you have fallen asleep and we don't want you to die. So all of that and more is wrapped up in willingness. But sometimes it means violating the 11th commandment of thou shalt must always be nice. So a willingness to come under the leadership of elders does not always equal a pleasant, benign situation. Sometimes it's hard. See, I'm not going to show up to your burning house with a squirt gun. I'm show up with a fire hose, ladder, and an axe. Desperate times call for desperate measures, as they say. 
But that is subjecting yourself willfully. Here's another one. Subject yourself theologically. This is what I mean by this. We are not up here teaching the commandments of men. Remember, we are on borrowed authority. We are not to lord it over you, right? We are on borrowed authority. We refer all of our authority to the Word of God. So subject yourselves theologically, meaning obey the commands of God as they are taught, not the commands of men. The testimony of the church hinges on this. Will we hear the command of God and do it? Or will we be at best hearers only who continue to listen to preaching and the teaching of the Word of God, but only seeing it as a collection of insightful but optional suggestions? Titus 2.15 is one of my favorite charges to the elder. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. No one is to disregard you. You see that? We speak, we exhort, and we rebuke if necessary. We patiently, yet truthfully, let one know if they are erring from the Word of God. If they are compromising with sin. It says no one is to disregard you. See, and that's where it gets hard sometimes. Hence the analogy of the burning building. We just can't stand by and say, hey, take it or leave it. No, when we proclaim God's Word, we say reject this at your peril. Reject this to your eternal doom. We are teaching clearly and yet forcefully because we teach the oracles of God and that is not something that is listened to with some kind of passivity to where you say, oh, these are pleasant words. Yeah, yeah, give me more. No, we want... We want to wake you up. We want you to respond joyfully with all conviction to the Word of God being taught so that you would hear it, delight in it, and obey it. But only insofar as we are teaching God's authoritative Word. The words of man don't listen to. That is earthly wisdom and demonic. But subject yourself to all that is being taught theologically from God's Word so that you are obeying not us. You are ultimately obeying the command of Christ, your Lord. Here's another one. Subject yourselves patiently. As shepherding the flock of God is a labor of love, so is being subject under the elders within the household of God. See, there's always going to be issues, whether relational or theological, to work through, and those things take time, as we've referenced already. But this overall investment, though it may take years, results in pruning, growth, and spiritual stability. And the result is men and women who are well equipped to pass on the Word of God to those also placed under their spiritual care. But this can take a long time. Patiently also in the sense that elders, no matter how wise or schooled we may be in God's Word, no matter how much we love you, may often get it wrong. We may misdiagnose something. We may jump the gun in assessing the situation. There may be a time where we haven't listened closely enough or carefully enough. So we ask you to be patient with us as well. So we may get wind of something, but our assessment may also be way off. But mutually, it is a willingness to work through those things. And they may take a long time. But as we let the Word of God speak to us and do its promised faithful work, we anticipate a fruitful and God-honoring result. So here's a fourth thing. We can add this. Subject yourselves faithfully. This is related to patient submission as well. As you commit yourself to discipleship. See, this is the commitment of one to sound doctrine, to faithful leadership, and being discipled, learning, and applying the whole counsel of God as it is taught. Just as Paul could say in the book of Acts, since I've been with you, I have not 
failed, right, to teach the whole counsel of God, to see how the whole word speaks to the whole of life, and its value is beyond price. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.14. Protect through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. See, guard it. See it as precious. Teach it often and faithfully. In 2 Timothy 3.15, we read something similar regarding the life of Timothy. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So this has been a lifelong endeavor to Timothy. It's not something that was done quickly. He's known the sacred writings. Now listen to this. Give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Wisdom. Gives us wisdom. But we have to be instructed in it regularly and truthfully and call out one another to be that faithful man of God. It's similar to the call of Solomon to his son. If you just go over briefly the opening chapters of Proverbs, you read things like this. In chapter 1, he says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. See, that is commitment, that is faithfulness, to remain under that authoritative word. In chapter 2, My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your ear to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord. There's an anticipated result there. There is fruitfulness in that quest for wisdom. But that is the mark of one who is faithful in their submission to the authoritative teaching of the gospel. In chapter 3 of Proverbs, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. So there's an internal work there. It's very important to qualify. But the commands we teach are not to be obeyed. They're not to be followed without a heart of love. First and foremost, a heart of love to God with a heart that delights in his law, that trusts fully in the provisions of Christ and his gospel. Chapter 4, hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. It says, do not abandon my instruction. So it's faithfulness on both parts. Faithfulness to continue to call one another, those under our spiritual care, to not abandon the teaching of God's word, to hold it as an ornament around our neck, but also to continue to commit yourself to being taught no matter what your station is in Scripture, each and every one of us, as we claim Christ, are always going to be students of the Word. Even if you are a teacher, you are ever the learner under the tutelage and knowledge of the Great Shepherd. Cannot underscore that enough. So that is the first one. I think we have time to get to the second. And he says, and all of you, moving on, this is our relationship to one another. We'll be brief with it. But he says, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So there are numerous one another's in Scripture to be kind and tender-hearted toward one another, to be at peace with one another. And all of these things are necessary for the church to thrive. And there is a sameness that occurs when we clothe ourselves with humility. See, this is the ultimate spiritual fashion statement, if you will. You can learn a lot about someone based on 
the clothes they wear. And within the church, our clothing is to be one of humility. Now, depending on which apostle you read, there's numerous instructions that tell us to clothe ourselves with something. We are told to put on the Lord Jesus, right? And make no provision for the lust of the flesh. Put on Christ. Colossians also tells us of our spiritual clothing. We put on a multitude of things that are befitting of the Christian and his character. But the Christian is never to walk around spiritually naked and exposed. But what are we, what is our clothing supposed to reveal about us? That we are humble. And that we are to be humble toward one another. And this is so important in light of persecution. We can, If we do not have humility, we can take on the spirit of every man for himself, right? That we can, that we should only, now that persecution and suffering has come, we're, we're scrambling. And if we have no humility, we will think of ourselves as trying to get everything we can from each other without thinking about what we can be giving and how we can be investing in one another. See, humility is the bulwark against dissension on the inside. We've talked a lot about persecution from the outside, but without humility, sure enough, we will have persecution from one another on the inside of the church. And we must, and it is humility that is the fortress against that. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.21, subject yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. All of you, see, not just younger men, not just elders, but all of you. This is a church-wide endeavor. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. See, humility should characterize everything about us. It should be the, the soil in which every other spiritual grace grows and blossoms and provides spiritual comfort and sustenance for one another. But humility is absolutely essential toward that. See, idolatry is when I allow anything to compete with God for supremacy. But pride is when I compete with God myself for supremacy, or if I compete with my brother for supremacy. And that has no place in the household of God. Humility is to crush that and to send it out. That pride is an unwelcome guest in the midst of God's people. So as we land our plane, we'll stop there right in the middle of the verse, and we'll get into the Old Testament roots of this. But think about how we regard ourselves toward one another in this passage. Ask, ask yourself, am I, am I humble? Am I, am I submissive? Am I teachable? Do I apply those things to my life? Are they, do they characterize my life so that I can be a man of God and so that I can be a blessing toward those who are under my charge? Think about those things. Ask yourself, have I humbled myself before my brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing how I can serve them? Have I, as we'll see next week, have I ultimately humbled myself before the living God, coming before Him with empty hands, knowing that all I have is Christ, but I ultimately have nothing to offer. See, that's where it begins, friends. You have not come to Christ with humility, with an acknowledgement that you need Him when you haven't begun yet. That's where it starts. So I'd encourage you to come to Him today and trust Him if you haven't. Humble yourself before Him and trust in His provision that He has given through Christ in His death and resurrection. Trust in Him alone, and you will find yourself equipped with every grace necessary to walk with Him in times 
where we see them as good and in times where we are suffering. But in all these things, with a humble, submissive heart, we are equipped to continue to be under the gracious shadow and provision of a wonderful Savior. So more on humility and subjection next week, but we'll stop there for today. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for our time together and uh, so much to, to glean from your word, so much to consider. And I do pray, Father, that uh, at least from these initial two, this three-dimensional look at humility, that we can see ourselves rightly before those who instruct us, those who, to whom we are responsible for to spiritually, and that we would have teachable hearts, whether a member of the church or whether in leadership, Lord, we are all students of your word. So in the big picture, I do pray that you would give us that grace and humility to have teachable hearts, but also toward one another. Lord, I pray that we would have humility, that we would see ourselves as mutually dependent upon your grace so that none of us is exalting ourselves as above each other. But in humility, as Philippians 2 says, to see each other as better than ourselves, walking in that ultimate example of Christ, to be willing to put aside our own interests, to be able to love sacrificially. And it is only by your Spirit, Father, that we can do that. And it is only through humility that that is accomplished. So Lord, we acknowledge our dependence upon you, our utter dependence, that, with, that apart from you we can do nothing. But I pray, Lord, that humility would be that glue that helps us stick together to grow with one another as a local church, as Emmaus Road, that we would be characterized by a humble, teachable love toward one another and a willingness to take correction, even when that correction is hard, even when that correction is based on something that we ourselves don't see. We need a a kind of humility that is simply foreign to the unbelieving life. So give us that this morning, and we know you will because you desire us to be humble. So Lord, uh, bless the rest of our time together as we worship you. In the name of Christ, amen.